Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another show of podcasting greatness on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and with video here on YouTube. All right, guys, we are, uh, I'm here in the United States right now, obviously, uh, as my listeners know, and we are just getting into the beginnings of Dealing with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and I just wanted to put a little wor- couple words out here of, of a timely nature because um, we are recording this. This is going to go up in like a day or two uh, of us doing this this week. Uh, sometimes I'm weeks in advance and other times I'm right on <laughs> right before it's about to go up. And in this case, I wanted to take advantage of that timeliness to point out to everybody who's listening to please, please. Uh, with whatever influence I have, with however many of you are out there, please go to the CDC, the WHO, the NHS, whatever your country's you know, actual official science websites are for this disease and what it's all about, this virus. Um, this is not a joke. This is not just the flu. This is not just a, a, a thing, some passing fad. And I think pretty much most people outside of the United States get that, but I don't know that everybody in the United States does. Um, and this is just one of those things where, yeah, it's going to be an inconvenience. It's going to be a problem. And um, But that's just kind of the nature of uh, you know, a global pandemic. It can be a bit of an inconvenience for us, but if we want to survive it, then we need to pay attention and we need to have our head on straight and we need to be listening clearly to the instructions and guidelines and rules that are being set for us by people who actually understand the science. Don't pretend you have degrees you don't have or knowledge you don't have or you just happen to listen to Sean Hannity and so you have a line in on the truth. Any more than listening to me is a line in on the truth. I'm telling you, go to the science scientists and get their data. I'm not going to try to repeat it for you here. Uh, it's not my place, right? That's what It's their job. It's what they do, and they communicate about this quite well. And one of the things I do want to point out, though, from my expertise is that something I've noticed that the epidemiologists, the, the epidemic people, the guys who really understand and study this stuff on a large scale over years and years and years and see how these things work is they also understand the social psychology of how this stuff works. Because a lot of people in a calm, you know, rational state where everything's chill or, or there's no immediate threat, believe that they will act a certain way when presented with emergency circumstances or a dire threat to their survival. And it turns out that we don't always act the way we think we will. And in fact, we often do exactly the opposite of what we think would be in our calmer period would be a nice, sensible, rational thing to do. You know, and we end up doing crazy things. And uh, and you don't want to put yourself in that position, right? Social psychology is clear on this. Epidemics cause crazy behavior. And they take that into account when they're putting their instructions together and their guidelines together so that if you, it might not make total sense to you even 
to to have to follow some of the rules, but they're there for your protection. And I just anyway, just really want to reiterate that you can get answers to any question you have if you dive and delve and look into it. None of this stuff is mysterious or unknowable or unlearnable. So do as many deep dives as you want. But I'm I'm just please recommending. I don't want to see any of you guys um, suffer needlessly or die you know, as a result of this thing. And the fact of the matter is that people are going to die. And there's nothing we can do about stopping that, except follow these rules and guidelines that we are given to protect ourselves and protect the people around you. So that all being said, that's my soapbox for this. Now let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. And on that note, I am welcoming back John Atak to continue with um, basically, you know, we in this big oral history of Scientology that we are doing on this channel, <laughs> uh, John is a major contributor and has given more information than I think any other single source for my channel, uh, other than, say, you know, L. Ron Hubbard directly. <laughs> so, John, welcome back to the show. Thank you. You'll forgive me if I don't shake your hand today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Um, okay. Well, we're gonna pick back up. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how are how are things going at your end? Any other any comments you want to contribute to that, or should we just get right to it? No, I, I think it's eminently sensible. We need to 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 have the real information. What what's going to happen is, you know, probably according to the virologists who are talking about it that, that we are dealing with with a pandemic, but it's not. It need not be a panic, you know, which is the first three letters and the last two letters of pandemic, if you notice. Very curious that. Mm. It, it needn't be a panic. If if we act relatively sensibly, yes, it will pass through the population, but most people will just experience a kind of mild flu. Uh, for the elderly, we need to be especially careful to, to keep them isolated from this horrible disease but uh, yeah they go to i was saying before the new scientist magazine have a very good piece explaining you know the, the realities of the situation um, awesome we need to be informed and 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 that's what we both have spent so much of our time promoting to people and we also are saying we don't know about this we aren't gurus we're passing on information second hand go to the source go to um virologists who and epidemiologists who know what they're talking about exactly cool man okay well let's get let's pick up the thread where we left off now uh, in our last couple episodes we've covered your history with scientology um we have covered um your involvement with the very roots of the independent free zone scientology movement uh, yes with captain bill and uh, and all the excitement we had in our last episode covering some pretty pretty grim details about that whole sordid history so let's pick up where we left off there and i think we're going to probably end up talking a lot of legal this this podcast because we're going to be getting into court cases let me begin uh, by first saying, I don't even know, with all the study I've done, the exact sequence of all the events through the 1980s, because I was in a very different headspace in the 1980s, and I wasn't tracking with any of this stuff. But a lot of things happened in Scientology, uh, in and out of Scientology in the 80s. So, John, you were heavily involved in all of that. So where should we pick up? Well, 
when I when I left in October 1983, the concern that many people had was that they had money on account in Scientology. And so one of the first things I helped to do is to set up a system where if, if you needed a repayment, then there was somebody you can go to, the, you get the forms, you fill it in, do, do that. I, I don't know how many people went through that. We didn't charge any money for it, um, which was kind of stupid looking back, you know, but <clears throat> oh, I could have retired by now. Um, but, you know, there were some very small claims. What interests me in retrospect is that, that we were very happy to help somebody get a repayment of money on account. But initially, we, if somebody came and they wanted a refund of money, having had auditing or training, you know, we still, at this point, believed. And so we wouldn't help them do that. And uh, that, that's a, it's just a fascinating part of, of the programming, you know, that if it didn't work and if it didn't, if they didn't deliver what they promised, and as Ron Hubbard said, we always deliver what we promise. If you didn't actually achieve supernatural abilities and the ability to communicate freely with anyone on any subject, then you deserve all your money back. That's the reality of it. But we were still involved with that. Um, the first significant case that I was involved with was, it, it's generally called the Leite case, after the Mr. Justice Leite, all judges in this country have the first name Justice, apparently. So he was Mr. Justice Lady. It sounds good. Sounds like he should have had his own TV series, Mr. Justice Lady. <laughs> um, and he had a case brought before him. And, and what had happened was that a couple had broken up in Scientology and the wife really wasn't all that keen on Scientology. And so the, the way that it had been dealt with was that they'd had a chaplain's interview. Now, a chaplain, for anybody who doesn't know about Scientology, is somebody who has absolutely no training in anything, but wears a costume that makes them look as if they're a pastoral counsellor within a Christian church. And it was decided that because the husband had contributed so much more to Scientology, i.e. he'd given them a lot more money, that he was therefore a better parent. That, that seemed to be the, you know, my understanding of it. He'd, he was a good Scientologist. She wasn't so sure. And she ended up leaving two infant children with her husband and a couple of years later uh, remarried uh, to a husband who you know by now they were both ex-scientologists and they'd set up the case they came to me or it must have been about april 1984 and said could i help them and i was amazed to see what they they'd put together you know, they had done an astonishing job. Um, this is where I first met Jerry Armstrong because they brought him as, in as a witness and he had just triumphed in the first Armstrong case in June 1984. Um, and so he was, you know, and they got together just an astonishing roster of witnesses. My addition to it was that the, the father in the case had said that he, he thought that disconnection was just the most terrible thing. And... Uh, I was able to provide a letter that he'd written to his business partner explaining how they could still stay in business by putting up a partition through the stairs and having their offices separated so they'd never have to communicate. And I brought the business partner in as a, as a witness as well. But that case was quite remarkable. It was a family case. And as is normal in a family case, it's held in camera. It's held in a closed court with nobody able to get in, certainly no media. 
And the judge, after hearing about Scientology for a couple of weeks, decided he'd got to make a public ruling. And the ruling was more than 50 pages long. And he basically denounced Scientology. It made, I think, three front pages of newspapers. And it, it was a big event. What happened after that is, of course, at the appeal court, the um, judgment was withdrawn from public view because it was improper for him to have made a, you know, a judgment in that way. Um, let me um, let me just quote from his judgment so people get yeah. the idea of the tenor of what he was saying. I just looked it up here and just got a couple of quotes from this. Um, Scientology is, but this is a direct quote from the justice. Scientology is both immoral and socially obnoxious. In my judgment, it is corrupt, sinister, and dangerous. It is corrupt because it is based on lies and deceit and has as its real objective money and power for Mr. L. Ron Hubbard, his wife, and those close to him at the top. It is sinister because it indulges in infamous practices both to its inherents, who do not toe the line unquestioningly, and to those who criticize or oppose it. It is dangerous because it is out to capture people, especially children and impressionable young people, and indoctrinate and brainwash them so that they become the unquestioning captives and tools of the cult, withdrawn from ordinary thought, living, and relationships with others, end quote. And if that is not the first judge who actually gets it, I mean, wow. Mm. Well... He was the second judge who actually got it. Ah, yeah. Because right. Breckenridge had ruled in the Armstrong case in, in similar tenor. Yeah. But there is nothing that strong before. But both Breckenridge and Leite, they poured over a lot of evidence. I, I've read all of the Armstrong transcripts along the way, a um, couple of thousand pages of those. And Breckenridge's comments are insightful. He asks questions. He's curious about what's happening. Um, I must say that it saddens me that, that the majority of judges seem to hide behind legal fences rather than taking this on in a straightforward manner and realising that, that this is indeed a dangerous group that is out to capture people, to enslave people psychologically and, and will not fulfil any of its promises. It'll just have a lot of starry-eyed people who are saying, yes, well, you know, I'm going to have supernatural powers by next Tuesday if I can find a hundred thousand dollars. You know, um, so it it had a significant impact. I don't think that Scientology has ever been very strong in the UK, even when Hubbard was here from 1959 to 1965, 66. He was, you know, bringing over a few hundred people. It, it wasn't a, you know, a massive. And after that, it, it just sort of petered out. And I think the later decision was, was a crippling blow in the United Kingdom. Um, I, I think that the next, I, I was involved in a, a group of, of suits um, to, together in, in LA um, in 1988. I first visited LA in 1986 and um, got to meet some of, some very interesting ex-members because of course that's the heartland really um i was my opinion was asked in um one of the cases with david mayo now david mayo had 
for those who don't know, he was put forward as, as the heir apparent. He was the man who was going to succeed Elrond Hubbard. We had no doubt of that. And then suddenly he was thrown out and he became really the, the focus of, an of the whole independent movement with his advanced ability centers, as they were called, the first one in Santa Barbara. And he then affiliated with um, Frank Sarge Gabodi up in Palo Alto. And um, Sarge had bought an old Mormon church, which was this beautiful building, modern building, but it was a bit strange having this spire on it, you know, and all of this stuff going on. But it made it almost seem that Scientology might be a religion or something, you know, which to me was a totally foreign idea, I must say. It's never a part of my thinking, nor most of the people I knew when I was involved in the 70s and early 80s. Um, it's funny because I, as an impressionable young lad, on this point, and concurrent at the same time, I mean, we're talking about 85, 86, 87 time period. Um, I for, Yeah, actually, 84, 85, because I went and um, partook in the protests of the Portland ruling down in Los Angeles. And uh, and this was 84, 85, I guess, before That's I even... That's the Christopherson Tichborn case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, I think it was after I started doing classes. I, th mm. I think so, in high school. Yeah, it was. So I had already started, so it had to have been after 85. But uh, somewhere in there, 85, 86, um, mm. I went out and protested and religious freedom now religious freedom now you know and like i said impressionable young lad 15 16 years old driving around looking at all these people really amped up about this because it was protest mode it wasn't just regular you know daily business mode and um and i i, I don't know i i kind of and, until you just said that just now i'd sort of not really thought about what an impression that had made on me as to the religious aspects of of scientology because i was right i landed right in the thick of it uh, with their using the religious cloaking for protesting, you know the the legal case that they had lost up in uh, up in Portland. So that's uh, that was my exposure to it at the same time, which was so we had a very different experience on that point, I think, which was kind of funny. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I never considered Scientology to be a religion. It always seemed to me that it, you know, I mean, I remember having uh, friends who who'd dodged the draft. Um, by, by doing the minister's course, which took one week. And you, you read a book by, what was it, Houston Smith or somebody about the world's religions, and now you're a minister. That's right. The great, like, the great religions of the world. The great religions of the world. Little, is, little tiny, thin little book. I read it. Yeah. A little tiny book. Yeah. 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 And I don't know if he did anything good, but that book was really not very useful, <laughs> I must say. But, you, know, it got, you, you became an ordained minister after you'd done it. And then there were the symbols like the cross and all of this stuff. And it all seemed like a front. It all seemed like, a, you know, we were a scientifically established psychotherapy. Why did we need to pretend to be a religion? Well, tax purposes. <laughs> um, and also making sure that, you know, one of the terrible things for Hubbard that happened very early on was that the New Jersey Medical Association sued the original Hubbard Dynetic Research Foundation for practicing medicine without a license. And then as Wilhelm Reich was just about to go to prison for doing exactly that, Hubbard had to get this thing that would be a barrier that would stop that from happening. And, you know, the religion angle, as he called it in his letter to Alan O'Brien of the 10th of April 1953, what do you think of the religion angle? You know, we could hardly be doing worse than we are doing. Um, and also was, Hubbard made direct reference to Reich 
in his lectures. He definitely knew and said that he had been railroaded, he'd been destroyed, he'd been run out of existence. Now, if you go look up who this guy is, he was a pseudoscience peddler. I mean, he was just a nutcase. And Hubbard he's just an thought... You know. He's an astonishing character, Wilhelm Reich. He's the last, one of the last of the great pupils of Freud. And uh, so he had a proper background and he decided that where Freud was wrong was, yeah, it was about sex, but it was about people who couldn't have a proper orgasm. And so he, his first big idea was that Hitler was somebody who didn't enjoy sex enough, and that's why he had to go and murder people. And um, that's the psychology of fascism for you. But then he moved to the US and, and he, he got into this thing about pyramids and aluminum foil, as it's called in the US. Aluminium is the, the actually wrong English word. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, I admit it occasionally the British are wrong. Um, but this thing of, you know, like sitting with a little folded bit of Alcan foil on your head, you know, and I don't know why you think that's mad. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have my doubts as to its scientific validity. Let me put it that way. And orgone therapy. That yes. You're kind of getting these cosmic rays and you've that's got right. stuff or something. But that's right. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he, he really went off the deep end. And yeah. and, and prison yeah. probably wasn't the right place for him. You know, there are other places that can be more helpful to lunatics than prison, you know, but yes. never mind. Um, he, Hubbard was, was aware of this and religion was a protection. When the great transformation happened at the end of Hubbard's life, I see him around about 1982-83. He's terrified that he's going to lose Scientology because the Guardian's office are going to get together with the mission holders. So he has to break that up. And that's where the Commodore's Messengers, the Watchdog Committee in October 82, take over. Or so it seemed from the outside. The reality was that Hubbard was absolutely in control and gradually becoming more demented. And you get this switch where... You know, my generation of Scientologists, let's face it, were hippies. The 1950s generation were science fiction fans, you know. And engineers. Now, yeah, and engineers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Astounding science fiction was read by uh, physicists and engineers, you know, who loved the stories and sadly got involved with Ron Hubbard. Um, some of them. I, I mean, for me, it's a terrible tragedy that A.E. Van Vogt, who I regard as one of the great science fiction writers, never wrote another word of fiction after Dianetics. I was in touch with him in 1984. So for 34 years, he had practiced a form of Dianetics. He never believed in reincarnation or any of that, but he really still believed. And this wonderful mind, the guy who wrote The World of Null A, um, was taken off to do something which... Well, I don't know. He had a life, but he could have you know, blossomed further as Heinlein and other of Hubbard's associates did. Uh, never mind. Um, I, I'll get over it. But, <laughs> Collateral damage, really. You know, it's how, it's it was how this has gone. That there was a difference that, that what we now got was kind of aggressive street thugs who believed that they were part of a religion. The Scientology suddenly transformed from being, you know, relatively dippy hippies, you know, who are all, you know, we're doing this for the peace and love of the universe, into this almost military cult that, that has echoes of the brown shirts for me. You know, that the fervor, the intensity of loathing 
which was something I'd never seen in Scientology. There was hatred was not a, an essential aspect of Scientology when I was involved. By 1984, hatred was the bottom line, as, as Miscavige put it back in 82. They were tough and they were ruthless. And that word bothered me. We are without mercy. And for me, a religion that's without mercy is not probably a very good religion. But That's very true. I'll, I'll comment here because I think it's important to the narrative that these are people who were raised under L. Ron Hubbard's tutelage literally 24-7 on the boat with Hubbard or once they went to shore were, his, were standing watches outside his office, inside his office, inside his bedroom. I mean, they were there all the time. Powering him, 13-year-old girls. That's right. And and boys, too, because there were Mark Yeager and um, David Rousseau, a few others, David Miscavige, eventually. Peter he only Gillum. stood a few watches, but he was around, you know, and Peter he was Gillum in the Peter Gillum was one of the Gillum children with the first three, and Peter's, yeah. That's right. That's right. So so there were boys and girls, more girls than boys, because I think that's just kind of how it worked out as to who was having what babies. But um, but it was interesting that if you look at what they were being raised with, not just a, not just in the vicinity of Hubbard, but the actual written orders, policies, the OSA, the, the GO, the old GO directives that would be written um, for the Guardian's office, which, you know, it, which don't do anything but inculcate a paranoid worldview that everybody in the world is out to get L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, and these are and they, major players. They receive no other education. Exactly. You know, That's uneducated right. people, unfortunately. That's right. Yeah. Or very, we should say, we could say very minimal education. There was some oh. lip service given on the ship to it, but they themselves were resistive. They only wanted to get the Scientology stuff. Well, and they weren't spending five hours a day studying no. English, German, mathematics, physics. They didn't take examinations. Nope. You know, their, their right to education was taken away from them. And, and as you say, their fervor and their, you know, the idea that the they would run about the ship giving Hubbard's orders and they were meant to give them in his tone of voice. And uh, I, I remember, I think I mentioned this before, that, that a 14-year-old who came out in December 83 and he told me he was the second in command of the whole of the UK. And then he said, but there are kids doing things as well. And I'm going, you're 14. And it meant that they were being pulled away from normal life and given power. And the situation did arise where they would be giving briefings about out 2d about people you know committing adultery as as some people would put it uh that that you'd have some 12 year old telling you off for having sex outside of your marriage or what have you and a pure a puritanical fervor built up again that that during the late 1960s from from my research as i became involved in 74 scientology in some places was pretty damn promiscuous so the Manchester organization, for example, um, the um, Los Angeles organization in 68, Captain Bill Robertson told me that, you know, there were two lesbians running it and they were into um, bondage and st stuff like that. Good for them. You know? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I heard but, the Sea Org in its formative years was pretty, yeah. pretty racy itself. You know, they, they were on boats. They were in tight quarters under high stress conditions. What do you think yeah. is going to happen? You know? Yeah, and then you get the reversal that that for something to be an authoritarian cult, it will either, it will control your sexuality, 
it will tell you what you have to do. And that will either be not have sex or have sex with everyone, you know, the Rajneeshi approach towards it. Um, he boasted that they were going to be the first AIDS-free community because they wore rubber gloves and condoms. Um, I'd like to point out there were many AIDS-free communities before AIDS came along. So Rajneesh was wrong about that. You know? Um, the, you know, how many people ended up in psychiatric hospitals because of, of you know, the being pushed into a room with 50 other people and, you know, it's just appalling. But yeah, so anyway, I, my second trip to Los Angeles and we've pushed forward a bit, you know, we managed about six weeks the last time we spoke. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Just, just, just to wrap on that, on that brown shirts comment, I wanted to, I just wanted to, I wanted to reinforce for the audience and, and maybe anybody who's coming in newly to this, it's not a wrong, it's not a false equivalency. It's not a weird comparison. It's actually right on because these are, these were people who had been raised in this environment they were exclusively loyal to L. Ron Hubbard personally, and that was, I mean, they, they might as well have taken loyalty oaths, but they didn't even need to because they had well, just been there. Well, they contracts. Yeah, exactly, uh, right? They would right. follow command, you know. That's right, follow command intention, the very first very first yeah. point of the Sea Org, the code of the Sea Org member, and they were all Sea Org members. We right? Will as I promised. Determined. We will be other determined for a billion years. Yeah, I promised to uphold forward and carry out command intention. And what did there, command yeah. do? Command just went, oh, I'm gone in 1986. Exactly. So actually, even earlier when he took off in his Bluebird. But point is, their their place, their headspace was a fanatical devotion headspace. That's where they were at. And, that, and they then executed L. Ron Hubbard's orders with ruthless efficiency because to them, Ruthless efficiency was a feature, not a bug, right? Yeah, and that's that's where they were at, and that's what they did, and that's how they almost destroyed, you know, uh, they did destroy a whole bunch of people's lives. They most that. certainly so, did. They most yeah. certainly did. And you have all of the, the dynamics of Robert J. Lifton's eight deadly sins of thought reform, this demand for purity and the notion that purity is fulfilling whatever the guru demands, and you have yeah. to do these things. I came to know uh, several former members of, of the Watchdog Committee, which was the one time there were 14 of them, and they were theoretically, they took their orders from Hubbard and they ran Scientology, the Executive Director International, the President of the Church of Scientology. They took their orders from the Watchdog Committee. And it was interesting to me that I can certainly think of three of them. I don't, I'm, I'm happy to name Didi Vogading because she never asked me to keep her name private. But I was, I was charmed by these people. They, they were good people. They weren't, you know, let's take away the invidious part of the comparison, which is they weren't Nazis. They weren't people who wished to destroy anybody. But in the same way that the Nazis were brought to believe that Jews and Romanese and blacks were vermin to be destroyed, you saw this tendency to say, well, anybody who opposes Scientology, of course, that's a different matter. You know, you can do whatever you want to them because they're opposing the freedom of the world. I remember a guy who he came to see me and, and he boasted that he, he had taken an afternoon off course in 1971 to go and get the first printing of the government's report on Scientology, the Foster Report, which was is a beautiful 
remarkably well-researched piece of work and more than half of it is the words of Aaron Hubbard himself. But this guy boasted to me that he'd gone and done this and he'd come to see me because he absolutely believed in Scientology. He was a disabled man. He had a problem with one of his legs. Um, he was living on disability and he couldn't afford Scientology. But he still believed that people like me should be destroyed because the only hope for humanity was the technology of Scientology. And you're just looking at this poor man who had, you know, he this was, you know, 15 years, 12 years after he'd gone to get this printing that he could boast about. And he was still caught up in this, this horrible trap, this horrible set of beliefs. So, you know, I'm, I'm at no point suggesting that the Sea Organization is like the brown shirts or indeed the black shirts afterwards in the sense of its violence, though there is, you know, more violence than there should be within the Sea Org. There shouldn't be any. Um, but there, there is this fervor. There's this demand for purity. There's the notion of a sacred science that, you know, that everything we're told is true and, and we've got to do it. And these are the last days. And if we don't, you know, Armageddon, it's like, you know, talking with a Jehovah's Witness. It, it, the apocalypse is now. And if, you know, I want Scientologists to survive World War Three, as Delron Hubbard said in 1978. Um, this, you know, winding people up to get them to behave in, in a certain way, it became more and, you know, more and more desperate through the 1980s, I guess because more than half of the membership had left. And there were, you know, one or two of us who were standing up and saying, what you're doing is wrong. And here's what Ron Hubbard says about it. <laughs> and here's where he contradicts it. You know, and uh, we were not much liked for that. Um, anyway, 1988. No. Yeah. So I, I, I was asked to um, consult to a, a case in Los Angeles called um, Freedom for All in Religion, FAIR. And there were 412 plaintiffs who were taking a class action against various Scientology entities. Um, I was asked over um, and my expenses were paid. Sadly, I wasn't paid a fee. I'd just like to underline that again. You know? <laughs> Send me the check now. Um, I, I went over to LA and there, there was a problem. They were a class of people who were suing a class of organizations and individuals. They'd already lost David Miscavige from the suit and I believe had to pay $5,000 for not being able to prove why they were suing him, why they were a class, and why the other group were a class. And I, I had a, I took with me the material that showed that all of the Scientology entities, Author Service Incorporated, the Church of Spiritual Technology, the Religious Technology Center, the Church of Scientology of California, and on and on. I took over the corporate filings for those groups uh, many of which actually came from an earlier case, a guy called Larry Dalkvist or Larry West, who had just long since disappeared into the mists of history, but he did a very good job on getting hold of corporate filings. By getting hold of those and by getting some statements from former members who had signed undated resignations from these corporations and putting together the argument that Scientology, far from being hundreds of distinct corporations, that simply shared the same spiritual technology, that they were completely a monolithic organization. And I 
what I did what is called piercing the corporate veil. It's the legal term for it. it sounds obscene now. Come think about it. But um, wh what I did was was to say, yeah, they are a class now. I think Fair by that time had filed four times and each time the judge had said, no, you're going to have to go and amend this claim. Now, normally the second one would have been, that's it, you're out. But, you know, but the judge was obviously quite tolerant towards their aims. My argument as to why all of the Scientology entities were class was accepted and was later, in fact, used by the IRS. Um, it was also used by Ben Corridan. Um, and it found its way into the Wallersheim case as well, uh, because Wallersheim's case, of course, was against the Church of Scientology of California, which by the time he won the $9.2 million that they did have to, it, they paid it in thin dimes, I think. Um, but the money they did have to pay, well, it was not one thin dime for Wallersheim. Well, $9.2 million, so much for that promise. But um, his case was against an organization which by the time he looked like he was he'd won, really didn't have very much money left. So he would have got, I think it was $120,000. And that was the end of that. He could have used the name Church Scientology of California uh, on his business cards, of course, you know, but might not have been quite the right image for, for Lawrence. I don't know. And that, and that was that was Scientology pulling a fast one on him, too, because they were they were sucking money out of that organization that he was suing because it had been the mother church when he started yeah, the suit. You know, and and the function changed midstream specifically to protect the church against Wallersheim's yeah, efforts. Yeah, and, and I was able to find some testimony to that effect as well. Um, that the, what was called the corporate sort out that Larry Brennan, who later became Denise Brennan, um, that he put together, um, making sure that um, all of these these things could could go on. Excuse me, I have some noise in the background here, mm. and it, it's gone away. Uh, okay. um, that that there was a very concerted effect in uh, in effort in in eighty one eighty two to completely change the corporate structure, uh, and exactly at that point, the Church of Scientology of California, which had always been a front, it wasn't the first church. Hubbard had, you know, filed three months before in December fifty three in Camden, New Jersey, but it was the group that was put forward to us as the mother church, and all of the money had been leached out of it. And I had some testimony about how that had happened. So that was all accepted. But the other problem was, how did we take these 412 people and make them into a class? What was the thing that all of them had in common? And here, you know, I, I was a week in LA sitting with the lawyers, talking with a couple of brilliant researchers I knew in LA. And we were trying to figure out what you could do, because even though Scientology did, was not accepted as having religious status, it nonetheless could hide behind the shield of spiritual claims. And, you know, so you can't sue the Catholic Church for saying there's a heaven. You know, you can't go prove it in court. You know, you promised me there was a heaven. Um, where is it? Show it to me. You can't do it. Um, so... I had to push aside all of the things that could be called spiritual claims. And I came up with just one simple idea. And that was that Scientology still continued to sell the book Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. And Dianetics was still a sub section of Scientology. 
So the claims that were made for cure, asthma, arthritis, allergies, that's just the A's. Um, cancer, leukemia, raising from the dead, the various claims that Hubbard had made of cure still stood. And the particular claim that was being made was that if you did Scientology within a period of, I can't remember what the top limit is, I think 1500 hours or something, but within a certain period, you would achieve the state of clear. And that meant you would be brilliant, have total recall of everything that ever happened to you, be immune to uh, diseases, you would never catch a cold again, have no psychosomatic ailments, you'd be Superman, basically. And that claim, the lawyers almost kissed me. And one of them took me aside, he said, for two years, we've been trying to understand what these people were talking about. And you finally... (laughs) Now, six months later, not having heard from the steering committee of affair, I, I put in a phone call. Uh, which in those days was an expensive thing to do to, to Los Angeles, <laughs> free Skype. And uh, said, well, what, what happened to the case? And he said, oh, it's been dismissed. And I said, oh, how did they rule on, on the class? And it was, oh, yeah, the Scientologists as a class, yes, that was accepted. Um, but I said, well, what about my argument that the offer of the state of clear binds all of you together and that none of you received it and it was a false promise? And there was a pause. And... I was told we didn't want to denigrate the state of clear, so we didn't put it forward. Most of the people involved in this suit were still making their living from auditing people from Scientology. And uh, yeah, that was the obstacle I, I, I couldn't overcome for them. If I, you know, I, I did, I'm, I think I managed to get a couple of the members of the steering committee to wonder about it, and they later became major players against Scientology. But it, it, it was, you know, there was still so much of that left. And because, of course, for me, it was long gone. You know, it was five years ago, I'd, four years ago, I'd stopped believing any of that. So I didn't mind denigrating the state of clear because the state of clear is, is an absolute perfidious nonsense. There's never been a clear. And the 273 cases that Aaron Hubbard said he'd done before publishing Dianetics, not one of them's ever come forward. You know, let alone Sonia Bianca, the first clear, or John McMaster, the, you know, the 273 people he'd cleared, not one of them's ever appeared. Um, so now, it's, it's now I have, I have a question, different. though, real fast, because there yeah. were, how many people were in this class action? As I remember, 412. That's what I thought you said. And... All of them, or a majority of them, oh, the steering, didn't. The steering committee of six people decided what would uh, happen. Okay, the steering committee got it. So, you, so when you have something like this, you put a, a set number of people, sort of, as the guys who are going to sort of oversee the thing. So yeah. we don't have to take a vote every time there's a decision to be made. But that no. that decision was major and majorly stupid. I. <laughs> Yeah, it, it could have had an incredible impact if it had just gone to court, whether they'd won or not. It could have had an incredible That's impact. Right. That's right. And it would have established the class, too. Um, because this is the thing I hear about all the time from people. Why don't you guys do a class action? Why not do a class action? It's kind of like, because uh, it's incredibly difficult to organize and set up and pay for and all the things you have to go through to do it. It's not easy. You know, and then but, to find out it was organized and rolling, and then they just screwed it up so badly. Um, well, 
it, it, and and it's absolutely understandable. But 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 to anybody who says, why don't you do a class action? Having been involved in something like 150 cases involving Scientology over the years, uh, ten of them, about ten of them involving me directly. Um, I became very familiar with the law. I became very familiar with the process of the law. And, you know, the great lion in this story is Lawrence Wallersheim. Wallersheim is the only person who held on tight and went all the way. And it took 20 years. And it took up every shred of his time through, throughout that time. You know, the man is, is an incredibly courageous and brave man. But... Almost, you know, when Christopherson Tichborn, when that case, she had a ruling for $35 million. And it had just started as a repayment case where they wouldn't give her her money back, I think. And it became, and the judge ruled for her. And then they managed to convince the judge, if I remember properly, that he had allowed a closing speech by the prosecution or by the plaintiff's counsel saying that Scientology was not truly a religion. And he therefore had to dismiss the whole ruling. And at that point, of course, after she'd spent so many years, I think it was the third trial they'd been through. She and it had started in the 70s. I mean, it had gone on for at least 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was an incredibly or, or incredible ordeal for her. Yeah. And, and the, the cases that Michael Flynn ran, I think there were 26 cases in all. Um, that the, starting with Lavender Van Shaik, you know, who of course she went to him and said, "I've been to all of these lawyers. I want, I think, it was three thousand dollars back from Scientology. If you take the case on, you'll get a letter saying I've had, you know, terminations or you know whatever. The, you'll get a letter with all of this personal information." And Flynn said, uh, "How could they possibly know that about you?" And she said, "Well, I told them." And he kind of went, "But the CIA, it would have taken them two years to find all of that stuff out." And he said, "I'm not taking a case." And off she went. And three days later, he got the letter <laughs> talking about a home goal that they actually so he looked at it and he went, OK, and rang her up. And that's how all of that started. And it ended with a five million dollar payoff and these famous silence contracts that people then you know, broke. I mean, I think Bill Franks's contract was the first to go public to say what he was meant not to say and that, you know, all of this stuff but the the answer is that litigation is always painful having been on the receiving end of quite a lot of it and spent I know, about 10 years of my life in court you will be ripped apart as an individual uh, everything that you have ever done will be made public um, everything that you didn't actually do will be made public you know the all of the gossip and the rumors and all of this stuff um, I found myself in a situation in one case where a guy had made a witness statement saying that he'd seen a psychiatric report saying that I was psychotic. Now, what he'd seen was a letter from a psychiatrist saying it'd be all right for me to get a prescription for a muscle relaxant, which you had to see. But I'd shown him this letter and there was nothing in there that said I was psychotic. However, if I challenged this in court, I'd have to put the letter into court. And it meant that I'd be putting my medical records into court. And the thing that I didn't want anybody to know then, um, and it's still illegal here now, was that I used cannabis, uh, which where you live is perfectly okay now. 
in Colorado. Yes, it is. Uh, most yeah. of America, much of America at this point. Yeah. I think yeah. you have 11 states where it's legal. And of course, Canada, which has a prime minister who has been known to wear blackface, has complete legalization, following on from Uruguay, the first country to, to legalize. But hmm. at that time, you know, nowadays in this country, people just say, so what? <laughs> but, you know, 30 years ago, this was, and so I didn't want to produce a letter where I'd had a psychiatrist say, uh, there is no problem with him using cannabis, which is what it said, to prove that he didn't stay I was psychotic. So you get into these twists and tangles. Um, the, uh, the other, uh, I, was I mentioned the Mayo case, which was the David Mayo case, which I also consulted to in my, in my visit in June 1988 to Los Angeles. And um, I'd actually been deposed, depositioned as a witness in this case by the famous Joseph Yanni, who was a, a fairly vehement lawyer, who was a Scientologist. And um, I had a, a really, I'd never been in one of these things before. We don't do depositions in this country. Um, and the oh, idea- Oh, you were that, in for a treat. Yeah. Oh man, and I can't think of anything we, worse than a deposition for for right. your average joe citizen to go through it, it's terrible because in in court you can have an instant ruling and we basically the woman the barrister here who was you know chairing the deposition did not understand the deposition rules i hadn't read them i had no idea the next time i was in a deposition which was with kendrick moxon and that was great fun um i read the deposition rules so I knew, you know, when this, you know, when I said, you know, I, I, I don't wish to answer that question, it's not relevant. The woman in the first thing said, you don't have any choice. It is, the judge will later on decide whether this can be included as evidence. And I'm saying, but if I answer these questions, Scientology will just make this public. But you're saying they can ask me anything they want about my private life, and I have to answer. That process would not be possible in a in an English court of law, um, we we don't have the deposition process, and you know this idea of honour among lawyers. Oh come on, you know thieves are a lot more honourable than lawyers. Um, you know they, it's like they're using lawyers in experiments these days because there's some things that rats just won't do. You know, um, sorry, that's a Robin Williams joke. Um, in, in case you didn't laugh at it, <laughs> um, it but uh, it's. You know, I found myself in a situation where a private letter that I'd written to somebody was suddenly being held up and, and I had to explain what I'd meant by the jokes that I'd made about Captain Bill in it. And, you know, it, you sort of, you, when you realise that your diaries can go into court, that your hard drive can go into court, that the only confidential relationship you have in the world, it's not with your doctor, it's not with your priest, it's not with your counsellor. The only actual one that's recognised is with your own lawyer. The only person that you can say whatever you like to and it not go into court. That was a shock. But I did have a situation in that deposition which was beautiful. I started answering a question and the lawyers on both sides leapt up at the same moment and told me to stop. Because neither of them, it was damaging to both of their cases for me to tell the truth. 
And this was the truth about the theft of, or borrowing, of the uh, upper level materials from Copenhagen, which I was not directly involved in, but I knew all of the people involved in it very well. And the day that they got back with the packs, I was in the room and helped them drink the champagne while they photocopied them. So, you know, I, I did have some direct involvement. Years, a few years later, Joe Yanni, their lawyer in the deposition, having been thrown out or left, came up to me and, and we had a conversation. And uh, he still didn't believe that I'd told the truth, that there hadn't been some kind of deal going on of, you know, where they were swapping OT5 materials with David Mayo to get something. And as far as I knew, there wasn't. And I'd spoken with, you know, John Nelson and David Mayo and Harvey Haber and various people on, on their side. And that, you know, so Yanni was convinced that I was a very clever liar. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to make this boast. I, I've spent tens of hours on the witness stand or in depositions. I have never once distorted the truth in any way under oath. And, uh, but obviously, you know, there's still plenty of time. Um, well, it's uh, interesting that a former Scientologist and Scientology lawyer was absolutely convinced that you had. And mm. the reason I say that that is so interesting is because it's, it's the clearest case of projection I've, you know, I can think of. I mean, here's a guy who's used to people, clearly, because he's, he's absolutely positive, even after he comes out of Scientology, you know, isn't their lawyer anymore. He's still got this idea, which means it was a basic, you know, it was based on a deeply held belief. And, and clearly this man did not, you know, his moral compass when it came to the legal system couldn't accommodate the idea that somebody would just tell the truth. I mean, it's there's a lot you can conjecture from that, maybe too much, but I'm just trying to point out that that's, you know, Scientology doesn't help that mindset at all. It reinforces it. <laughs> yeah, the, and and the idea that there might be, you know, some honorable people in the world. Um, right. Yeah, he couldn't believe it, even after he left Scientology, which, of course, I'm, I, I, I stress it a couple times only because it's, it's sad, but true that, you know, that people leave these groups and hold on to so much of the belief, so much of the of the views. Oh. And it and it really takes it. This is why I keep, you know, harping on this thing that it takes a dedicated effort on the part of cult survivors to, sh you know, shed those thought processes. It takes oh. work to do it. If you don't put that work in, you're still walking around as half a cultist. This is, you know. to, to me, the most essential message. I mean, I was steamrolled. I had 12 years of, of harassment. We talked about that on a, an earlier show. And it was horrifying. There was no support from the community of ex-members. There was no support, ultimately, from the legal system. Uh, we now, a harassment act was actually passed at the exact time that I which would have protected me from much of, of what was done. But it, I, so I just had to go. And that was in January 96. I wrote my last piece. There's no silence contract. I was not paid off. None of that happened. I decided I because you know, the legal system wouldn't support me, even though I was telling the truth and I hadn't done the things you know, that they were trying to, you know, um, accuse me of. Um, but it, so 17 years then went by 
and I had four more years of harassment because they weren't going to quit. Um, but 17 years went by and I realized that X-Men, and I was not involved in any counter Scientology activity. Uh, I was involved with very few ex-members during that time. I became interested in researching terrorism as, as a, another fanatical system. I read up about tens and tens of religious and psychotherapy groups. I just gathered information. I wrote novels, I painted pictures, I did other things. But then in 2000, late 2012, I think it was, I was introduced to an ex-member in Australia who had had the most dreadful um, time from, you know, her parents got in when she was two. She was abused throughout childhood. It was covered up by the Citizens Commission on Human Rights um, by a woman called Janice Eastgate, who I'm going to name here. Sue me, go on. Um, well, she got busted already, I, I, I oh, think, good. for this. I mean, yeah, she we, got, yeah, she's, she got busted hard internally and externally, but you know, uh, within and outside of Scientology, uh, she's not, her, her, her name is kind of mud at this point. Yeah. I mean, she, she was to stand trial for what she'd done. And then it was found that Australian law, uh, when she'd committed the offense, then this girl was 11 years old when she had a, you know, take back her statement to the police. But when that offense was committed, the law that she was being sued for didn't exists so she walked but um i was told it was, only, it was only by the hair of her chinny chin chin that she got out of that yeah you absolutely it, yeah she it, really lucked out and she got in major international trouble scientology's names was on were, was on international headlines over that whole fiasco yes absolutely it was yeah. uh, as it should have been and a, a, an australian a television reporter called steve canane who you know and who wrote a fantastic book called Fair Game about the history of Scientology in Australia, which is um, in, in places incredibly funny uh, and very insightful. You know, it basically shows you what the, the reason that there were inquiries in Australia, the Victoria one being the first one, was because a guy had asked for his money back. He'd asked for a few thousand dollars back. And when Hubbard didn't give it to him and wouldn't give it to him and they communicated directly, he used all of his connections and he was an utterly corrupt human being who had connections in the Labour Party in Australia. And he used them and um, brought down the wrath of, of the state of uh, Victoria upon, and two other of the six Australian states, states upon Elron Hubbard um, because the guy wouldn't give a few dollars back because he was mean and selfish and uh, he met his match. But that it's a great book. But it Steve, is actually uh, a shameless plug. Uh, I've had Steve on this show. I'll put a link in the uh, description here to we, we talked about all of this stuff. It was a wonderful podcast. Yeah. And one of one of my favorite my favorite interview with, uh, of course, my favorite interviews are with you, Chris, but <laughs> my, my, my favorite interview with um, with somebody who's not, you know, shared the experience that we've shared uh, a, a wog, if you want a raw meat dead in the head wog to use L. Ron Hubbard's spiritual scriptural terms for such people was with steve canane he he was in copenhagen he sat down he put a recorder on the table we talked for an hour and it was so great to, to actually have somebody who really understood the subject he was an outsider but he knew all the questions and and that's i think abc australia still have that up somewhere um but that was good fun but steve 
he's a journalist, right? He's a reporter, he's a TV presenter, this kind of thing. And frankly, my opinion of such people is not tremendously high. Um, I want a victim in a picture. I've said this before. I said this the last time we spoke. And, you know, every now and then you meet one of these people, like Paul Brackey, who was at the Brighton Evening Post, um, or Ian Williamson, who was with The Independent, or, of course, Tony Ortega or Paulette Cooper, people who um, they, they, won't, they won't stop. They, they want justice to be done. And Steve's one of those kind of people. And he'd, so he'd come over from Australia to interview me. And I would only at that time, I'd talk with people who, where there was abuse of children involved, always. And I would, free of charge, and I would talk with people who were writing books, unless they were Janet Reitman, because um, she was just rude, you know. Um, and so, and I, I'm offering free help, and you would argue with me. No, forget it. Steve came to me, said he's writing a book. So I said, okay, I'll see you. And uh, he actually did pay me as well, which is quite unusual. I think it was $400 or something, but nonetheless, it was something. And he said, look, there's this woman in Australia, and she's really been messed up by this. And uh, would you talk with her? And I kind of went, I, I don't really do that kind of thing anymore. And um, I found out about how to use Google hangups or whatever it's called and um or skype or and talked with this woman and she had you know abuse to 11 put back in the household by jan eastgate five more years in the household being physically attacked by this guy he by the way pled guilty to abusing her so there is no doubt of this um and Jan Eastgate, let's let I, I realize we haven't said we haven't said this, so we should say this now just to put the context. Jan Eastgate was the head of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, first in Australia, then internationally. And when this yeah. came out and she got busted over this, she had she had was then in the international head of CCHR. So that's who she is. And that's her fight was always anti-psychiatry, anti-psychiatric abuse. But apparently she was okay with domestic abuse if it if if releasing that information was somehow going to harm the Church of Scientology or one of its adherents. This girl, so, was, this girl was sexually molested yeah. uh, for five years from the age of six. And she, as far as human rights... Hubbard tended to redefine words, propaganda by redefinition of words. He said it. Human rights means obviously meant something very different to Scientology than it does to me. But yep. I talked with her, and you know we're still great friends. Actually, and we we still talk every couple of weeks. Um, she at sixteen, she'd escaped into the Sea Organization. She had five years of that, and. Uh, she then escaped at 21. I thought I was going to be talking to a woman. She went and got a degree, a uh, medical degree. I thought I'd be talking to a woman who was, uh, you know, I know, in her 20s or something. She was, in fact, 37 by this time. So she'd had 16 years afterwards. And she said to me, John, is reality actually agreement? Now, this is a woman with a degree in a medical subject, scientific degree. Is reality really agreement? And I said, if you're the hypnotist, yes. But for the rest of us, no. Um, and the next week when we spoke, she said that she had used a scented laundry conditioner in her washing. 
And we both knew that we hadn't talked about the Sea Org hygiene hat. And this meant that she had, you know, my thing about um, helping people to recover is very simple. It's not thousands of hours of counseling. I've never seen anybody more than six times in a counseling situation, you know, never. Because if I can't do it in that time, you're going to become dependent on me. And that's, that's not a good idea. So I'm sorry for any Freudian analysts out there who do three sessions a week for five years. I don't believe in what you're doing. Um, the point is to trigger a spot where the person is willing to question, where they're willing to say, is that true? And once you've done that, so what had happened to her during the week was that she'd gone, for the first time in her life, she'd been willing to use something centered because, of course, under the Hubbard rules, no sense, no soap, shampoo, spray, perfume, nothing, because it's all the psychs using roses to rule the universe. And so if that sounds like, if that sounds crazy, by the way, folks, it's not. That's actually what Hubbard wrote in the issue about fragrances or scents. It's, that's what we're talking about. And he hated anything with perfumes or fragrances and banned anything like that on all Sea Org bases. So, you know, and that's not, it's not necessarily like it's a destructive practice, but like everything in Scientology, he takes it to 11 and, you know, you can't have any scent of any kind to the point that I used to have Sea Org executives walk into a room, their nose would crinkle up. They'd be like, who's where, who's using scented products in here? And that, that's kind of how their voice would sound when they said it. And they'd look around and everybody would suddenly get this hunted look and like, you know, and you had to find out who in the room was using Irish Spring. So... That's how crazy this would get, okay? So if you think that you can't take anything and make it crazy, Hubbard could even take a sensible thing like let's not use overly fragranced or scented things to an extreme that is ridiculous. And that's why this was so significant for this woman. I just wanted to plug that in there because he, he directly connected it to Sykes and mind control and said that was the yeah. whole point. Yeah, that rose perfume is using is being used to control us all. So this That's is right. a man who, who didn't like the smell of roses. You know, That's right. I mean, it sounds like such a joke. You just, you know, the audience would just kind of go along. Oh, that's that's funny. Uh, no, guys, it was for real. <laughs> we really lived like that, you know. Right, Rajneeshis, so. if they were to go into the presence of Rajneesh, had to be sniffed. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they had sniffers because he, he again, and it, it's made me sort of wonder, you know, maybe the temporal lobe epilepsy that Hubbard almost undoubtedly suffered from, that heightened sense perception is an aspect of it. And, yeah, you know, could have been. Others would fit into it. And yeah. also, they, they were both raised by a grandparent. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, uh, Jesse Prince, you know, at uh, Toronto when we did the Getting Clear conference in 2015, and please go out and buy it because, you know, it cost you about three bucks a session and Jim Beverly needs to make some of the money back that he spent on that. But Jesse was, uh, it, it was like watching a comedy show. He was so good on the stage. But the story that I most remember is where Miss Gavage tried to get rid of him 
by assigning him to be the guy that would send the weekly reports to Hubbard. And there were bankers boxes full of all the reports from all the organizations. Alwyn Hubbard's not running Scientology. Oh yeah, really? And the person before had been busted because he could smell rose perfume in the boxes. And Jesse was left with this situation. He was a heavy smoker at the time, so he had no sense of smell. And um, he really didn't know what to do. And he hit upon an answer. And the answer was to just send the boxes to Hubbard. Don't sign the thing. Don't do anything. And he got a commendation from Hubbard saying that he'd understood that the perfume was in the ink, in the pen, with which he would have signed the form. And Miscavige was very annoyed because he thought he'd finally get rid of Jesse Prince. So uh, lots and lots of wonderful stories. Should we get back to David? Yes, Mayo? please continue. I just, I, you know, the segues are awesome and people learn from them. But yeah, let's get back to the main line. Well, you know, the, the, the realization is this, that the, the most, you know, if you do not stop believing something, you keep believing it. If you think that affinity, reality and communication equal understanding, then that's where you'll live. If, and they don't. By increasing communication, you do not inevitably increase affinity, as Aaron Hubbard says, because as Aaron Hubbard says, bullets too are a form of communication. Screaming at somebody is a form of communication. It doesn't raise affinity. And at that point, the whole basis of this magical triangle, and it was meant to be magical, folks, um, falls apart. It, it's a nonsense. It's not a piece of science anymore. It's just some old twit thinking something foolish that he wants to impose on the rest of us. Um, so it's to, to think you have to be able to question the doctrine, the dogma, the beliefs you have. And I personally, and the unquestionable assumptions that you have made, you know, as a little boy, I was taught that I had to love everybody because Jesus loved everybody. And it was only in my time as an intervention counselor with Scientologists and having a really dreadful experience um, doing that, being harassed, you know, having seven carloads of Scientologists and four nights without sleep. But I finally got to the position where I think most Sea Organization members live, that I found out what it was like to no longer be able to cope because you're so sleep deprived and so anxious. And so you just become a token that's pushed along by other people. So I had that experience. I went home and this thing popped up in my head and I went, you've got to love everybody. And I'm like, well, why? I was like, oh, you can't think that. You mustn't think that. And at that point, I realized that we all live with unquestionable assumptions, you know, uh, particularly QAnon. They live with quite a lot of <laughs> Yes, they do. Yes, no, they do. Anyway, uh, you remember, Alice, this is a song about Alice. Mm-hmm. You can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant. Um, sorry, that's a, a, an Olo Guthrie ref- reference we threw in there for, for anybody who knows <laughs> Alice's restaurant because the song isn't indeed about the restaurant at all. Um, And this hasn't been much about David Mayer. They had a problem. They had racked up $2.9 million in costs, Mayer's lawyers by this point. Defending him from Scientology because he was practicing using Scientology trademarks outside of the church. He was practicing Scientology without a license, yes. Yes, exactly. The Advanced Ability Center, which he'd set up, by the way, right outside Santa Barbara, California, which is where I first got online on services. And we heard about David Mayo's group. Yeah, it was yeah. it was because Harvey Haber lived there and 
wanted it to be there. I think that that it ended up being there. But you know, that's a whole other subject. The you know, my involvement with with David over the years. Um, interesting man, very very clever man, which I didn't realise until. 2013 you know when we talked about Scientology and all of that he just seemed like he was a, a us, usual sort of smart bloke when I, I only had one long conversation with him three hours and two th when he heard I was back in 2013 and it was basically you know he actually was uh he studied physics as a teenager he was uh, meant to have gone on to become something remarkable and instead he became L. Ron Hubbard's auditor and uh, I think he did come to regret that at some point. $2.9 million. So, you know, I take on a class action again. Why don't you sue them? Well, because they can ruin your life. That's why. Um, and the lawyers, you know, I was introduced to them because I, Frank Gabodi was funding the case. Uh, you know, he'd inherited millions and uh, was very generously at that time until he uh, threw David Mayo overboard in 1993, which is another, will be the last of my litigation stories probably. Um, he was looking after this, but $2.9 million, and they needed a way to get it back. Now, in this country, costs are tied to the action. In the United States, you need to countersue the person to get your cost back, often as not. And they'd got something going on, but they really weren't quite sure what to do. And I had a, a little thought. And the thought was, why don't you ask them for documents that they then will refuse to give you, that you will then produce, showing that they do have them. And the way to do this, the Church of Spiritual Technology, which, is the, which took $500 million from the Hubbard estate, there was $648 million in the will. $500 million went to the Church of Spiritual Technology, which basically exists to make sure that the name L. Ron Hubbard will always be remembered. Because you know, well, he was a narcissist. <laughs> Man, and that is true immortality. Yeah. How stupid yeah. can you get? That's right. Um, and that well, was the first goal, by the way. That was 1938, letter to his wife saying that's what he wanted i mean that precedes all this nonsense and and i i i'm, and I'm going to boast again i'm the man that released that letter that's right we owe all a debt of gratitude just for that alone yeah i'm not the man that got it out of scientology though and the guy who got it out of scientology still won't take credit for it because he'd rather not be harassed <laughs> so you know i get all of the fame and all of the harassment but that was a skipper letter my only goal is to smash my name into history so hard that even if all the books are forgotten, I'll be remembered. Uh, I can make Napoleon look like a punk. I'm not sure in what respect he could do that, but you know, I, I want the names of Hitler and Napoleon and Genghis Khan to be remembered as examples forever. If you want to scare a Turkish child, you just men mention Alexander the Great, you know, and he'll come and get you. So I want people to be able to say, Ron Hubbard will get you and they'll go to sleep and be dutifully good. Um, so they had a problem. And so what I said was, look, Church Spiritual Technology is trying to get tax exemption from the IRS. Let's have somebody pop into the court there in Washington, D.C., copy some material, and then we'll ask for that material. And it worked like clockwork. <laughs> the Scientology entity 
CSI or whichever, RTC, whichever one was suing Mayo, said, we don't have that material. And uh, so I believe I got them their $2.9 million. I charged them $1,000 for the idea. John, you are a silly man. Yeah, there are no two ways about it, are there? I'm, I'm, <laughs> Not really. Um, <laughs> I mean... it, it's when, you know, a few shows ago, you called me a semi-intellectual and I said, that means half-wit. You were exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> I got onto the side of the Corridan case. Bent had had his, he said he had $900,000 in the bank that was taken from him, that his building was worth $2 million, that Riverside, California was worth $2 million. And, um, now, Bent, now to be clear, so we're super clear because people might have heard these names bandied about. We're trying to yes. trying to define them as we go. Bent Corridan was a mission holder, right? A very, very successful one. Mm. Odd name, but his name was Bent. It's a Danish. Name. It's a Danish name, Bent. Yeah, and okay. he was, and he was from New Zealand. Ah, just okay, to really clarify it. things. And, that's that's um, good to know. Actually, I'd never met him or interacted with him, so I always sort of had this idea it was American because it was Riverside Mission, and it never even occurred well, to me. I think he spent most of his life in the U.S. So, um, and certainly his accent. I saw him last in 2013. Um, was still trying to get payment for this job, actually. But, you know, what do you do with people? You know, I only charged him $2,000 and he didn't pay me. Uh, he did get his building back. Um, wow. Ultimately, because Jerry Armstrong nagged him, he paid me $1,000. But, um, you know, when I last saw him, you couldn't have, you know, he sounds American. You know, he, he certainly doesn't sound like a New Zealander. Right. And he's also the one who worked with Nibs on he, Mad Man yeah, or Messiah? He, yeah. Elron Hubbard, <laughs> Mad Man or Messiah. What happened was that he and Elron Hubbard Jr. Nibs signed a contract. And I think I think it ran six weeks before Nibs was threatened and paid and walked away. So what Ben had was a contract that said that he could put Elron Hubbard Jr.'s name on the book, which... You know, and he did a, a good interview with, with Nibs. Um, so that's fair enough. But Nibs was not the co-author of that book. Brian Ambry was the co-author of that book. Ah, uh, okay. okay and, yes, and, and Bent gives him credit for that in the second edition onwards. Um, cool. The book itself, I think, is a bit of a tangle because it, it's just episodes, chapters about something or other with no continuing narrative. Um, but some of, some of the material is is very very good. He he got an interview with um, the no second wife that Elrond Hubbard didn't have, Sarah, and he's the only person who did. Um, on her deathbed, she spent, I think, three days being recorded telling the Elrond Hubbard story. But that is material that we will not see um, until the person who owns it passes away. It will go in through her estate. But uh, yes, Elrond Hubbard was engaged in magical ceremonies <gasps> what a surprise um right so what what we already knew is true but but there will at some point in the future be a lot more detail about the nasty things he was doing um then you know there are all sorts of things going on about trademarks and service marks i became involved with um the fight against 
Coercive Tactics Network, FactNet, which was the first uh, database of uh, psychologically coercive material ever created in the known universe. It was created by an incredible man called Bob Penny, um, who lived in Boulder, not so very far away from you, which is why I've been to Denver and to Boulder a couple of times. Um, Bob was uh, studied sociology at university for nine years, and he told me that he then determined this was a waste of time, got into Scientology and become a car mechanic. And um, he is one of the cleverest people I've ever met. Uh, he learned programming at a time when, you know, we're, we're talking, what, 91, 92, that he starts putting all of this material together. The internet has just been born, and he's worked out how to do this. He published Marjorie Wakefield's books uh, privately, bound them individually, you know, in these ring binder things, um, spiral binders. Um, he... His wife was the mission holder at Denver, I believe. And um, he was just an incredible guy, but he also had multiple cirrhosis. And so, you know, Jerry Armstrong was, uh, he and Lawrence Wallersheim had put FactNet together with the idea of let's let people have this information. And Jerry then was going to be the, was the original president of FactNet. And Lawrence came to me. Um, we didn't know each other before this time. Uh, he came to me and said, would I be the president of FactNet? And of course, you know, because I'm very gullible. I said, yes, not realizing that on the one hand, I didn't really make much of a contribution to FactNet. It was Lawrence and Bob. They did it. They deserve whatever kudos there is for that. And there's a lot of kudos for that. It's where, you know, Ronnie Lerner and so many other people who built databases, this was the first one. Um, now I think it's totally involved with climate studies. And, you know, I, I got in on the edge of the um, Wallersheim case a little more. You know, we'd been in touch. We'd just not met before that time. I became, for a year, I think I was the president of FactNet, you know, a non-profit, which has uh, paid me nothing. It seems to be a continuing theme, doesn't it? Seems I'm, to be, yeah. Yeah, it seems to be. Um, and... Scientology shifted its, you know, it had gone after, it, it created this new litigation field where a religion sues people for using its scriptures. I don't think anybody had thought of that one before. Then it was suing people for using its trade and service marks. And I remember going through the list of trade and service marks. I think there were 2,000. Um, There's a so, lot. There's a lot of them. So, uh, one of the marks is... Um, the happiest place on earth or something which yeah motto for flag yeah you can't say that now because because we own it and all of these peculiar magical symbols that have been used by different cults throughout the centuries are now trademarked in, including the um ot symbol which is actually a symbol that had been used by a car company previously which is one of the weird ones talbot cars i think it was but they shifted from suing you for using the word Scientology, you know, and that kind of stuff into this, yeah, it was innovative, you know, into this sort of, um, if you have our material in, in a hard drive, then, and FactNet were raided, Dennis Ehrlich. Ah, was, this is Dennis Ehrlich's thing. This is how he was yeah. involved. Okay. Yeah, who 
you know, I, I think he, his four children were left behind in Scientology and he, he, he did a lot of work. He fought very hard through the 90s to help people and, and to get the truth out there. But you suddenly find this situation where people are coming and taking your computers away and everything that's on your hard drives, there was a raid in Sweden. And sometimes when you do these kind of oppressive, suppressive things to people, you can get a little bit of a, you know, a retaliation. So in Sweden, what happened was that a member of parliament put the OT5, OT4 and OT5 materials into the parliamentary register, which meant that they no longer had copyright. And all you had to do was send $5 to the Swedish parliament and you could get the OT5 materials. Um, which, which probably have Oops. my handwriting, probably have my handwriting on them somewhere. But oh, does it? That might have happened. Okay, um, yeah, because that that uh, definitely is. Uh, well, let's just say Scientology spent an awful lot of money to prevent exactly that kind of thing from happening. Well, there, there's a, a a piece by Aaron Hubbard called "What What Your Donations Buy," and the answer is harassment of people I don't like. Uh, peculiarly, that issue actually was originally issued as what your fees buy. And it's one of the, you know, when Hugh Urban talks about, you know, the scholar talks about Scientology basically pretending to be a religion, doing all the things that make you look like a religion, then, you know, which had been hinted at by the pro-cult apologist uh, Brian Wilson, who was, uh, not the beach boy, who was a professor of sociology at All Souls in Oxford, that, that they constructed the story that made them look like a religion, which is, is a fascinating thought. Um, it, it truly is. It's a nuanced conversation talking about whether Scientology is or isn't validly a religion, because you do have a base of people who truly do believe in this dogma. And so you go, well, isn't that good enough? And you kind of go, well, no, I think, I mean, for me personally, intent matters, but uh, especially at the top. But um, but it's a nuanced conversation. It's not a black and white, simple answer. Oh, yeah, no, they're just not because they're not. You, there's, are, there are arguments to be made for this on both sides that are good arguments. So I've gone down that, that hole myself a few times. I maintain it's not. I, I, I hold on to that as a, as a statement. But I do understand why people think it's validly a religion. Yeah, and, and I, you're absolutely right. You have to make the differentiation of according to who and according to where. Um, constitutionally in the U.S., once you've decided that a belief system is a religion for you, then it is. In sociological terms, and I've just mentioned him, and he's he's sitting down here. You know. uh, Brian noticed that he couldn't spell the name Brian. Uh, <laughs> Among many other things. I, th I think I've given this, him the sharp end of my tongue a couple of times. Yeah, with this book, you're... You've probably memorized it by now, but the 13th chapter, and how interesting it's chapter 13. It's <laughs> called Scientology, a secularized religion. So, and he in this has 20 points by which he assesses whether something is or isn't a religion, which are used now to, this is 1992, to determine whether a group is a new religious movement or not. And the, the point I'd like to make is, is Scientology a religion? According to these criteria, yes, it is. And this is a sociologist 
and an expert on religious movements at All Souls, which is the largest college at Oxford University, one of the most prestigious universities in the world. So let's accept what he says, that his criteria for religion are true, and therefore Scientology is religion. And let's also point out, while we're about it, that the Manson family, by exactly the same criteria, is actually more of a religion, because it ticks more of the boxes. That Daesh, ISIS, ISIL, is a religion, um, that Om Shinrikyo, a terrorist organization that sought to kill 4 million people, is a religion. So the conversation is really, what do you mean by religion? Yes. Good uh, point. If the Aztecs ripping people's hearts out was a religion, then Scientology is definitely a religion, you know. <laughs> yes. And from I mean, that point of view, amazing. I get it. I And I get that. I get totally get the it argument. Amazing. Yeah, from the point I agree with you, intent is important that the that because Hubbard was utterly cynical. And um, I think we found four sources for people who in the late 1940s, Hubbard had, what I say, we, Russell Miller and I, found four sources, people who had said that Hubbard had said to them, the best way to make a million dollars is to found a religion. And that was countered by Scientology by saying, no, it was George Orwell who said that. Which is one of the, for me, it's mind warping, the thought that because somebody else had said something, it can never be repeated. <laughs> right, or L. Ron Hubbard could never have repeated it. I, I find it hilarious that they would use that they would use uh, some sort of historical irony that they would use George Orwell of all people. Uh, that's funny to me, you know. But yeah, I knew. I think I documented three of those in my book from your materials. Um, so I knew there were at least three. So yeah, <laughs> the, the, the Hubbard definitely said it. There's zero question about it. And and the. The 10th April 1953 letter to Helen O'Brien, and my copy came from Helen O'Brien, that's the provenance of it. She was the head of the Hubbard Association of Scientologists. She mounted the Philadelphia doctorate course in December 1953. And the letter to her, 10th April 1953, is very, very clear indeed. What do you think of the religion angle? So, right. you know, you know, but again, as Aaron Hubbard said, and the most important thing Aaron Hubbard said, and I keep saying it, is he explained in the Philadelphia Doctorate course that you have the pieces who must not know what the rules are, you have the players who know what the rules are, and you have the game maker who does not have to follow the rules. And uh, he didn't. Uh, he most certainly didn't. Even when you talk to people who audited him, and I've talked to a number, he would stop in the middle of a session and tell them to write something down or do something. He would not be the preclear where the auditor was in charge. You know, he broke the auditor's code. So, you know, he didn't, didn't, didn't have to. But unlike Freud, Freud never had a single session of psychoanalysis. Do you know that? I think you mentioned that before. Yeah, I'm going to keep yes. that. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. He says the thought that Hubbard had some slight belief in what he was doing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he did. He absolutely did. And I think a belief curve rose over the years as it went on. I, and I think he was all in by 67. Yeah. I think, actually, I, probably by 64, I think he was all in. Because that's when we start seeing the confidential stuff and the yeah. solo auditing. And why would you be doing solo auditing if you didn't believe in this stuff? You know, it doesn't make any damn sense. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, Jerry Armstrong pointed out to me when I first met him in July, June, July, 84, 
that uh, Hubbard was trying to cure himself. Mm -hmm. And when I went through, you know, you go through the things in uh, Dianetics that it's meant to cure and you get short-sightedness, but not long-sightedness. It's the first time I ever saw the word bursitis. You you wear a bursa that lubricates between bone and muscle. He had bursitis in his shoulder. Asthma, he had asthma. Terror stomach, as he called it. He had, he supposedly had ulcers. Exactly. Know. All those things. Yeah. It, and, yeah. And, it, and it's obvious to see it because you see it in the affirmations. Yeah. That, that he's you know. uh, he's talking about his perfect and lovely feet even there. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, crazy. I mean, on, on the, you know, the legal things, I was sued for all sorts of things. And... Um, I made a terrible mistake. Uh, by '93, I was pretty much on top of it, and I had a an intelligence chief who'd defected and was talking to me, who was then captured and sent off to Los Angeles under guard. Um, and that was the sort of turning point. I thought that I was actually finally going to be able to do this. I never wanted to stop anybody practicing Scientology. I've never had any um, acrimony against any Scientologist. Uh, I would like to see those who have committed criminal offenses and abused others in prison, but I don't wish them any harm. Uh, I didn't wish Hubbard any harm. Um, I don't wish David Miscavige any harm. I just want them to stop harming other people. I want them to be contained from, from doing that. But that's, you know, it's put me in a, you know, I felt that, that, that I was starting to get somewhere. I had a, a search warrant for St. Hill called an Anton Pillar order. And unfortunately, one of the five spies that was operating against me knew about it. And I found out they knew about it. And it meant because they'd boasted that they had my medical records. Now, that's a criminal offense where I live. Here um, too, total criminal violation. I knew where they were keeping them and uh, in the sunroom, as it's called, St. Hill. But that was blown and everything started going wrong at that point. I was engaged in this court case because I'd written two letters. I'd been asked to write two application letters to the Guardian's office. Um, The second one was to start a celebrity centre in Manchester, which I'd been asked to do. And you write a, a life experience letter to them. And so, you know, here's my life history in its most intimate details. And they were showing these to people. Now, my complaint was that this breached confidentiality and that they were seeking to be my employer. So it breached a right of a duty of trust there. They were my religion, they claimed, had been my religion, they claimed. So they were breaching a religious trust. They had been my counsellors. So they were breaching that trust also. And so this is what's called a breach of fiduciary duty. And I sued them. And uh, that was the most foolish mistake I have ever made. Because this is why you don't sue them. Because they will then demand to have every document you have in in your possession. And um, I had, there was nothing I had a particular problem with there. But what they found was this clever loophole in the law which was closed six months later 
that because my lawyer was slow in in producing material she was telling me i didn't need to worry about this which was really foolish of her but i didn't know the law as well as i know it now um and so we were late with discovery with with documents and they put forward a, an affirmation uh i don't make affidavits because i'm an agnostic i make affirmations um not in the same way that Darren Hubbard did. Um, I don't. I do have perfect and lovely feet, you know, obviously, but um, it, it wasn't that kind of statement. I they got me to my lawyer got me allowed me to sign a statement saying that I had now made full and complete discovery, and we should never have submitted that because they then said, "Look, we've got your bank statements, but we haven't got your check stubs." Now later the loophole closed because it was said, you know, providing seven documents that all give the same evidence is not relevant uh, lord justice wolf closed that loophole too late for me i lost a case uh they'd hired a lawyer for a half hour hearing it cost me sixteen thousand two hundred and fifty pounds to pay their lawyer for half an hour which is about twenty thousand dollars because he was a what's called a silk he went on in fact to be the dean of the college where Brian Wilson used to be, uh, All Souls at Oxford, the biggest Oxford college. So he was rewarded for his perfidy. Um, I, I was, you know, so then that would go into every case that I was contumelious, that I had violated a court order, contumacious or contumelious, you can have either word, which led them to then say, he's lied. And that's their statement about me, which no judge has actually said that I'm aware of, but I was contumelious. I had failed to produce my check stubs when they were demanded of me. And all they had to do was say that in any subsequent court case and, and the judge wouldn't have anything to do with me because it, it's something, you know, so you don't get it, you know, don't go down into a pit of snakes thinking that you're going to win. You know, I pretty much knew quite early on after two or three years that I was going to lose but I wanted to put enough material into the record so that in future, Scientology would come unstuck. And very fortunately, um, when the internet came along, my last act was to make sure that the 800 page intelligence pack went on the internet, that all of the documents, the skipper letter, from, which we mentioned from 1938, all of the documents that I considered vital became publicly available. Um, through the offices of a, another person who I maybe shouldn't mention in this context, but uh, so I'm not going to, uh, but another stalwart human being who actually made, you know, I lent him my documents, he made sure they reached the public and they have been the foundation of uh, much of the work since. Though, you know, let's get honest about it, we should be putting up a blue plaque to James Phelan who is the most important of all the people who've ever investigated Scientology and his name is completely forgotten. But he's the guy in the 60s who actually went and found Hubbard's real college records and stuff like that and kicked off the whole discussion about Hubbard's integrity. And you've got Alexander Mitchell in 68 and you know, Paulette Cooper. Um, just a few people along the way who've been stupid enough to stand up against this tsunami of hatred that is the Church of Scientology. Um, my last. Well, it really, it really comes down to environments that they can control. 
That's what I'm sitting here thinking about right now. You well, know, they can't control Twitter. Yeah, gatekeeping is is what it's being called these days. Information control, as Steve Hassan calls it, gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. If somebody controls your information, I mean, there used to be the papal index right into the 1950s. There was an index of forbidden books published by the Catholic Church. And it was a sin to read one of these books. <laughs> Come on, guys, you know. I know. But, but more to the point with why would legal be an arena that you would be you would want to think not just twice you want to think about five or six times before you start thinking about taking on the church of scientology in the legal arena and the reason is because that's an environment they can actually control to a great degree not fully obviously they've had their ass handed to them a few times by people yeah. who controlled that environment better but there are so many rules, there are so many loopholes, there are so many pitfalls that the average person doesn't know anything about. And unfortunately, some lawyers don't know anything about either. You find out that there is no super lawyer who knows all the laws about everything. This and is lawyers, lawyers often believe in the honor of other lawyers. I had right. a situation where um, two, two of my lawyers said that they were going to actually take their own action against a Scientology lawyer, because he had lied, and they could prove it, and he'd lied to win an action against me. He'd said that a document had not been filed on time when it had. But within about two weeks, these lawyers were no longer keen on doing anything about it, because they'd had to think about it. And when you get into the amount of time, I mean, I spent 10 years working on the Lawley Scott case uh, over the materials that you know, the upper level materials, they were sued. And that was a very tortuous story. Robin Scott had kind of stood guard while Morag Belmain and Ron Lawley went into the advanced organization in Copenhagen, said they were with the Religious Technology Center in their old SEAL uniforms. And Ron had grown a handlebar mustache so nobody would recognize him, demanded their OT materials and got them all. And then you know, run off with some of them. Um, Robin Scott was basically, Jesse Prince comes back into this story. Jesse went and visited Robin and got him pretty much to make a confession. Robin, along the way, had been talked into going to visit a client in Sweden. Now, this is when Jesse Prince was still in the church. Yes, absolutely. This is yeah, when so Jesse's, Jesse's being the heavy here in this case. Yeah, this senior, senior official of, of Scientology. Right. And a very persuasive man. You know, he, this is the man who persuaded Diana Hubbard to give up her daughter at the age yep. of, Ryan was seven or eight at the time. Um, you know, and he's, you know, you've met him. He's, he's the most charming human being. Yeah, had him on my channel. Yeah, you can, you know, check out the interview. Absolutely. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Robin had been in this thing where, you know, somebody offered to pay him a lot of money to go to his Scottish Kander Craig Advanced Ability Center, but they couldn't get out at the moment. Would he fly out to Sweden to see them? And they'd book the flight and they booked the flight and he flew to Copenhagen where the police came on and arrested him. And I then had to spend a month bringing in documents. That's where I first got the Larry Dalquist, Larry West documents in 84. We, we actually leased a photocopier, which cost us a small fortune at the time to get Robin out of prison. And I got these, you know, we couriered documents over at vast expense to us. I don't think we were ever paid any of it back. Um, and Robin was 
you know, his wrist was slapped and he was told he couldn't go back to Denmark for five years and he'd committed industrial espionage. Then there was a, a fight between Morag Belmain and Steve Bisbee. They were a couple, they ran the Advanced Ability Centre, East Grinstead. They were both dear friends of mine, but at that time they were both taking a little bit too much alcohol with their water. In fact, they weren't taking any water at all, to be honest. And one night, in the middle of the night, they got into a fight on the street outside the house of a woman called Nancy Carter, who worked for them. And Nancy came and told me, uh, eventually. But what happened was that they got upset with, she, she came along, there were all these knowledge reports, there were all these independents. I'm at this point where I'm not really believing anymore, but I have the authority over people. I made the stupid mistake of appointing this guy to go and investigate what had happened with Stephen Morag, because I was on Nancy's side, right? And what he did was he got, he collected nasty knowledge reports about Nancy from everybody he could and dumped them on Nancy. Now, Nancy was a woman in her 60s. She was a charming and delightful woman with a degree in English literature. She'd interviewed Thomas Stearns Eliot, T.S. Eliot, as part of her, a bachelor's degree, which I was tremendously impressed by. Um, I was also a bit shocked that I'd known her for a year before I found this out, which told me that we'd not been talking about the right things, you know. But she then, of course, was picked up by Scientology and made a statement about everything that had happened in Denmark, because she knew about it all, because she was working with them. They then threw her out on the street. I did my best to make it okay. And I carried on seeing her for some time after that, and she was a friend, but she wanted nothing more to do with any kind of Scientology. She went back to the Anglican church and felt a lot better, she said, than she had done for years. So that was good. But it meant they had material there. Jesse Prince got Robin Scott to cough up this statement and I, I remember trying to persuade Robin at the time that there should be honour among thieves and that he really you know he was coming down to East Grinstead and I was having to stop people from killing him because that was how they felt about it and they're not the only ones I think Robin's had a few people want to do that over the years ultimately that case took 10 years and they had no lawyers left they had no money they had me and I put together a document pack which showed Scientology that if they went into court, then they were going to get all of this material exposed. And sure enough, the day the trial was, I stayed up all night writing the questions for Ron to ask the first witness, who was Sheila Chaleff, the head of intelligence, I think. And I gave it to him at the door and he went off to court and he came back and he said they dropped the case. So after 10 years, you know, sadly, you know what's going to happen here, don't you? Mm -hmm. They didn't pay the bill. <laughs> they owed Surprise. me 37,500 pounds. And Robin Scott and Ron Lawley did not pay me a penny of that money. I went bankrupt because you know, I couldn't meet my own litigation costs and, and around it all went. But the okay. point is that that was 10 years. If you want to give your life to this, and I did. I did give my life from the age of 19 when I got into Scientology through to now, a big chunk of my life. You know, there was a 13 years where they weren't harassing me. And I came back going, they're going to start harassing me again, but I've got to come back with this message 
you might not have escaped from Scientology yet. You might think that by not doing auditing, you're free and clear. You have to examine your thought processes. Now, I hope it doesn't upset him, but I'm going to mention Kerry Gleason here. Kerry was Executive Director International after um, Bill Franks, I think. And I had the chance of interviewing him. He came and had dinner with me. It's the only time I ever met the man. I don't know if he's even still with us. And so we had dinner and I thought, now's the time. It's time to ask him what he thinks of Scientology. And I said, what do you think of Scientology? And he said, it's shit. And that was it. That was the interview. The point was that he was still making his living by selling the administrative technology of Scientology. And that contradiction I've seen all too many times where people have, they believe that they're, you know, I, I used to, I used to always introduce myself on stage. It was a little while um, where I'd say I'm a recovering Scientologist, you know, to basically put it over that, which I don't think there's any of it left in me, apart from a few body thetans here and there, obviously, we've all got those. Um, but, it, you know, I don't think you could be less of a Scientologist than I am by now, because I've thought about all of it bit by bit. And we, you know, with the idea that I'd take it back. When I left, I kind of went, I reject it all, because I'm going to use it to think. So I must reject it all, get my thinking back, then I'll, I'll accept back any bits of it that, that are valuable. There's nothing. There's nothing you can't get a better version of from somewhere else, frankly. It's mainly just creating euphoria in people, very good indicators, make people high, make them happy. So let's, right. let's get, let's wrap up with, with a, you know, I won't go into the murderous things that happened to me. I was wiped out in court. I was bankrupted through litigation costs. I lost a five bedroom house, uh, which would now be worth more than half a million pounds. Uh, my mortgage was only 30,000. Um, my life was, you know, my health was destroyed. It took years to come back from the, the stress of it. But it's all been and gone. So there was one case um, that I, I got pulled into, which was where they decided that they were going to do another deposition. So this must have been about I don't know, 1994. And Kendrick Moxon himself, who was the head of Scientology's legal department and one of the 38 unindicted co-conspirators, along with Aaron Hubbard, in the Guardian's office cases in the United States, he came out personally. And this time I'd read the deposition rules. I already knew that we shouldn't be there because under English law, the only time you can issue a deposition order is if somebody has refused to appear. I was perfectly willing to stay in a five-star hotel in California and say nasty things on the witness stand about Scientology. They'd never asked me. I was charged £10,000 by an English court as a witness, which I think is, I've got 10 precedents in law in the US and England. I, I don't get there's anybody alive who has as many precedents. And that's one of them. Because we went to court and said they haven't, summoned me to the California court. So under English law, and the judge decided that I was at fault and fined me the costs of the hearing, £10,000. So, so here I am in this deposition hearing, having gone down for another 10000 this illegal deposition hearing, and I've got the deposition rules in front of me on the table. And um, 
I, I don't think it would damage his reputation to say now. On the second day, when we went in, the lawyer who was, the English lawyer who was sitting at, in the place of a judge, walked down the hall with me, out of earshot of Kendrick Moxon, and he turned to me and said, they're the most awful people, aren't they? <laughs> Which is the impression of just one day of listening to Kendrick Moxon. And he was, I was a bit naughty. I had a, I worked with Richard and Bonnie Woods, who were really close friends, and Bonnie and I would do intervention work. Richard was, Richard's a great guy. He's a very clever guy too, but he, he wasn't involved with the interventions we did. He and Bonnie would later do a lot of work to help people. Richard is six foot four and built. And so I said to him, under English law, you can have what's called a, a Mackenzie friend in the room with you. And so I brought him in. I said, sit just on the edge of Moxon's eye line and glare at him throughout the thing. And you could see Moxon kind of, you know, this huge threatening character. What a, you know, you think Scientologists with OT powers would understand a little trick like that. But he, so the, the thing I particularly remember is Moxon pulling out this thing saying, you say in your book that Elrond Hubbard was not a blood brother of the Blackfoot Bikuni Indians. I said, yes, because that's, I do say that. And he said, well, here is a letter from the tribal, a member of the tribal council of the Blackfoot Indians. Tree many feathers. And I said, he's not a member of the tribal council. And Moxon looked at it, looked at the heading of the letter and realized he wasn't. I said, he's an eighth blood who devised his own ceremony without the authority of the Blackfoot Indians because there are no records. And because in fact, the Blackfoot nor any American, Native American people ever made a blood brother it's a viking story that hollywood picked up in the 30s but and, and he's going stop 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 i didn't ask you that i didn't ask you that and the the lawyer's going no let him say it you know? and so i pointed out you know tree many feathers had just made this thing up and we did oh, hours and hours of this over two days i don't remember how long now the thing is with the deposition at the end you sign it and that makes it illegal affirmed document they never asked me to sign it and that was for me that was an incredible idea that i hadn't made i hadn't said one sentence that they could use in any way against me they didn't even bother to get me to sign it it was just a piece of harassment basically exactly Hobson went off with his tail between his legs but and that is not a, a an off the you know wall claim that's actually church policy to use legal means to annoy and harass. And Hubbard said it's very used, easy. The law can be used very easily to harass. Enough harassment on someone who is on the thin edge already should be enough to cause his professional decease. Is it decease or demise? Yep. I, th I think it's decease, actually. It's kind of an odd word there. And then right after that, of course, comes the ruin them utterly. If possible, line. ruin them utterly. Um, That's right. And... A professional, I think it, it might be demise because he's saying they won't. I, I think actually, as I think about it, I think demise is the word. Yeah. We'll go with that for the moment. Yeah. Um, in 1955, uh, uh, the Scientologist Emanuel on the dissemination of material, which, by the way, if there's anybody watching this who's ever been involved with Scientology, there are several things that you must read. One of them is this, the Scientologist Emanuel. I'd never, it was in the technical volumes, but you do the material that's on your courses. There's no, you know, you don't sort of, 
it, instead of watching the television in the, well maybe some people do you don't I, I actually did listen to Oren Hubbard lectures every now and then and things but there are you know this guy had you know hypographia he, he could not stop producing this material and you suddenly find this great long um, the Hubbard Manual of Justice is another thing that you know putting a head on a pike and all of this he should these are you know available they're not secret except for the fact actually I'll take this moment to clue the audience in on the fact that for the last many years it was shortly after I left that I first heard this happening that within the churches of Scientology around the world now you cannot find the technical volumes, the red books, and the green books full of all of the policies that are all in chronological order. That's how those books were put together. And they are the complete sum of Hubbard's technical writings and policy writings, at least as applicable to that level of church. They're not even there anymore. They have purposefully ordered them out of the qualifications libraries, out of the course rooms. They only have the course packs and the, all of the newly authorized coming down from Miscavige books and materials and dictionaries. And it's still a wealth of material, but it's not the complete material by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> and that's no coincidence that that exists that way because it prevents exactly the advice that John's giving right now from being able to be carried out. You have to go on the internet to find this stuff now. Yeah, and, and yeah. I mean, people have talked about you know, alterations to the material that's happened. And I must say that the only one things that I've checked that have been pointed out like that are where, you know, an, an issue was originally, you know, a pronoun that should have had a capital letter like father had a, you know, there are changes of that kind. I've never, I've not seen any significant changes. I'm not saying they haven't happened. I'm saying I haven't seen them. But what has happened is gatekeeping, taking the information away and, what used to be, you know, commonly available, as you say, has now been, you know, withdrawn from public view. And if if you happen to be, you know, a communicating member of the Church of Scientology, the International Association of Scientologists, that is a question to ask. Why is the material not available? And, you know, let, let's, let, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, ask about a misunderstood word. You know that people who have misunderstood words commit overts, they commit sins or crimes against other people. So it's very important not to give people misunderstood words. You may be one of the few people who knows the answer to this question. Why is the word squirrel used in Scientology? What does it denote? Where did it well, come from? Well, according to Hubbard, it comes from it's it denotes offbeat practices, altered Scientology. It, that's what it that's what it means. What's yeah. its etymology? Why does he use the word squirrel to describe such a person? Um I'm sorry to put you on the spot. No, you got me on the spot here, and I don't know that I know the answer to the question as such. I just know how Hubbard described it. And he said that they are, you know, they're kind of like squirrels. They run around looking for nuts and stuff. I mean, it's this kind of a, of an idea. But I don't know if I invented that or if Hubbard actually wrote that. What Hubbard originally said is that they are in a squirrel cage chasing their own tails. Now, in, in Britain, that's meaningless. We, we have no such expression. We call them hamster wheels. Well, see, so do we. And until Hubbard yeah, said so, that, I'd so never thought of a squirrel wheel. Should, 
<laughs> they shouldn't be called. Yeah, well, it's the idea that they'll chase their own tails. They'll yeah. go nowhere. Yeah. Even they, even coming out of the church, I call it the hamster wheel to nowhere. I don't call it the squirrel wheel to nowhere. Squirrel cage to nowhere. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. That's yeah, yeah, probably why. That. But it's just this, you know, when you get into the craziness, this thought that Hubbard was actually all the time giving people words and telling them, you will attack me if I give you words that you don't understand. And even the word that is used by Scientologists for somebody who practices Scientology without a license is misunderstood. Good point. Yeah. Very so good maybe point. the reason maybe the reason that Scientologists feel they have to be so hateful towards those of us who no longer share their beliefs is because of their misunderstood word. And really we should be called hamsters. <laughs> uh something to keep in mind. <laughs> We're all a bunch of hamsters out here. Well, listen, I um, I want to return briefly to this thing I was point this point I was making earlier because I don't know if I if I finished the thought or not. Maybe I did. I just wanted to. This, this to, is like Alice, where you didn't write your name on the slate at the beginning of the trial, and you can't remember who you are anymore. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah. The thing about controlling the environment, I think this is an important point. Um, it's a framing. It's just a way of looking at it, but. You know, why is Scientology so powerful in the legal arena? Well, it's because they pay a lot of money to control that environment. And they are better at controlling it than most other people by by witness. I mean, they get, like I said, they got their ass handed to them. When you get very competent and detail-oriented representation, then you can hope for outcomes like that. When you get slipshod average regular, like anything from bottom barrel to average level cover you know representation you're gonna lose that's just what's gonna happen because they're gonna hire people better they're gonna hire more people first off they're gonna have more brains attacking the problem from more angles they have they are not shy about using the money that the, that they have to do this and um and they'll just keep and they and they will persevere long beyond the ability of most regular mortals to do so because they got the money to, and, and they really, yeah, and they don't have anything better to do with it. So, just want to throw that out there. As far as like I've said this before, but it's worth repeating that, you know, it's not just some blase. Why don't you guys just do a class action? Why don't you guys just get a lawyer? You know, it's kind of like why don't you just go see a therapist? It's like there's a lot more going on to this than you think. If you think it's all just that easy to deal with this stuff, you know, it's not. So. And, and I think what, what happened was, I mean, if you look at the, you know, I, I published um, a piece of blue sky, what's now, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky in 1990. So the 30th anniversary of publication has just gone by. The next book to be published in the English language was Inside Scientology by Janet Reitman. And... For 21 years, no book was published in English. And that was because of the control that they had through litigation. Now, what happened that changed that was the time suit. Rich Behar's Scientology, the Cult of Greed, and I named a little booklet in homage to, to that, 
uh, for people who've not been involved in Scientology, who probably won't be, you know, or don't know anything about it, won't, probably won't be watched. But if you want to explain it, you know, to somebody, nice little slim volume, there you go. But that was an homage to Rich Behar because they stood up. Time wouldn't stop. I'm told it cost $20 million to fight time and Scientology lost. And at that point, David Miscavige had what they call a cognition. Now, that's a word to the rest of the world. It means a thought. But to them, it means an epiphany or revelation. And that was suing and harassing people is not really getting us where we want to go. We are a laughing stock, you know. So the policy changed. They don't use the law. You know, I mean, they are the most litigious organization in the history of the world. There's, there's no competition. With the IRS case in 1993, they dropped 3,000 court cases in a single day. Right? Those were just cases involving IRS people. So that was their whole thing. We will pour out thousands and thousands of suits and cause the professional demise or decease or whatever it was uh, and ruin people utterly. And as somebody who was ruined utterly, I can say, that's a part of the technology that does work. You know, Scientology does have that kind of power. When you've got a billion dollars and you know the paper mountain technique, which is that you just keep filing more stuff in court and more stuff in court. I mean, um, Paulette Cooper had a situation where things would be filed in different states for her to appear at the same time, which is not physically possible. Um, I think Jerry ended up with, you know, 48 contempt orders or something where all he'd done was exercise his free speech, the constitutional right, but you can sign away your free speech, it would appear, your freedom of speech. So, yeah, you, you are going and tangling with a very dangerous monster if, if you get into this, but they can be beaten, and Laura Swallowsheim is probably right that they won't, the power of Scientology won't go away until they are properly beaten in the courts. I had a case, they sued my friend Bonnie Woods for libel because she was handing out a little leaflet. They were basically doing, they for the first time opened a little shop in East Grinstead. 59, they arrived four miles away. It takes them until, you know, the 1990s before they dare. And it was firebombed at one point. It was awful, the feeling of the locals towards it. But it meant they put a street recruiter out, you know, with a clipboard. And so the local churches wanted to do something together because they couldn't think of anything else. I mean, to be honest, they wouldn't even meet together because the Catholic guy wouldn't be in the same room with the Baptists, you know. So I had to go to two separate meetings of the churches together in East Grinston, which I used to call the churches untogether. But they wanted something they could do. And I said, look, just get two of your parishioners get this guy with a clipboard, go up to him, hand him this leaflet and say, we're going to be with you. Everybody that you talk to today, we're going to hand this leaflet. Now, um, the secret was, and I don't think they'll sue me for it now, that I wrote the leaflet. I wrote, Bonnie didn't write it. She got sued, Bonnie and Richard got sued for it. I wrote a leaflet that they were then, they could edit as they wished. So I wrote a draft and it began 75 million years ago, in this sector of the galaxy, Prince Xenu exploded 
the souls of 178 billion or what have you people in volcanoes on the planet Earth. This may sound like the work of a science fiction writer, and it is. The point of doing that was that what Bonnie called taking the, the bait back into the nest, that this, the only street recruiters are people are new because the more longer in Scientology, the less you're able to communicate with people, basically. So, you know, you go out there with it. What would you most like to be? What would you most like to do? What would you, would you like a free personality test where we ask you 200 questions, the answers to which are many of them rather personal. And now the guy's getting this leaflet. And what he does is he goes in and he gives it to the person and he says, this is nonsense here. And the person has either done OT3 or not. But sooner or later, somebody who's done OT3 sees this and says, sorry, the recruiter now has to pay double for all their auditing because they have to have a class eight. So you've just done the recruiter a favor. They can't get any more auditing. They won't get any audit. And they mustn't ever say this and they must be told it's not true. But you've also, we closed down the Dynetic Bookshop and the Chichester Mission in a matter of weeks using this technique. I've tried to export it many times, but you know, we, we even Bonnie even went over to LA and was was actually handing out leaflets not so very long, you know, a few years ago. Bless her. How how did what happened with that suit that they sued her? Well, they sued her. This was in England, right? That they're doing this? Yeah. Yeah. By this time, I know from the Lawley case what you do. And she, in fact, got the same document set that I'd used for Lawley. And exactly the same thing happened on the steps of the court. They dropped the case. They gave her $55,000 pounds, about $65,000. They made an apology in open court for what they had said about her because she'd countersued. And um, they signed a document which can only be presented if there is litigation, allowing Bonnie and Richard Woods to say anything they like about Scientology, which is why, if you look very carefully at a copy of this book here, you'll see that it's published by Richard Woods. Anything I say about Scientology in the UK is published by Richard Woods because he can't be sued. I, wow. I can't believe that David Miscavige allowed that to happen, but he did, guys. Wow. One almost wonders if that was done and a signed deal before he even knew about it somehow. But regardless, yeah. that's an amazing outcome. And that is really good news. That material was then moved to the Mary Johnston case. And I'm not even sure that... That, or was it Mary Johnson, Mary Johnson, I'm not sure, in Ireland. And that was the precedent in law in Ireland. I'm not even sure that she knows that that's where her case came from, that I designed this case and you just keep exporting it. So there is a way to defeat them, but you need somebody who is absolutely expert on Scientology. And you know, unless you've got a tremendous amount of money, I'm not that person anymore because I don't do this kind of thing. So go to Chris. <laughs> I that guy either. But yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, the point being that, you know, I, I, I'm all, of course, speaking, you know, when I talk about taking on Scientology legally and this kind of thing, I'm talking about me. 
I'm talking about, you know, us. I'm talking about regular folk, right? Um, <laughs> you know, you got money. You got the you got the will to do it. I mean, you know, fine. But, yeah, have a strategy that's going to work. You know, have, have, have people who actually understand it. Because so far, unfortunately, um, you know, from what I've seen, most of these, uh, the lawyers that I've heard or seen who had anything to do with this stuff, were way in over their head before they even realized what was going on. And um, and they get their ass handed to them, you know, and that's that's yeah, not and, and but you know, I'm I'm going to make a public protest here that there are several cases that have occurred in the U.S. where the lawyers didn't even send me an email. They were so convinced that they knew what they were doing, and those cases have been lost, you know, yep. at great cost, because you you know it, it's like you know the media people who who come along and you know the my first TV thing, BBC Panorama, back in 1986, and the journalist comes along and says, it's about the money, because he's read two pages in Forbes magazine. And he knows what it's about. Uh, only once in my, my life as, as, as a TV producer, and I've done a couple of hundred media pieces over the years, I, I don't do very much anymore, but only once has a TV producer come to me and said, John, what do you think we ought to do? You know, that's why I got annoyed about Leah Remini and I apologize to her and, and to Mike Rinder, but they never asked me. You know, you've been around this a long, and you, a long time. You've got a lot of information and you seem reasonably smart. Do you have any ideas that might be helpful? People don't ask. And that's, I think, for ex-Scientologists, it, it's to some extent because Scientology is a way of making narcissists. It's a way of making people believe that they're the cleverest person in the world, and they're not. I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I, I think when it comes to that, we, you know, this word gets bandied about quite a bit, and, and this kind of thing. But I mean, let's face it, we're all self-centered. You know, we're all. That doesn't, that doesn't mean narcissistic at all. No, it doesn't. But it's often, but that word gets bandied about it gets thrown around to explain egotistical self-centered behavior when it is not narcissism narcissism is is i don't think people really get like how far out down the spectrum that right. is it's right. not it's not your neighbor who just you know doesn't doesn't uh like something you know that you're wearing says something bad to you or something and and says they're all that you know that's that's not narcissism narcissism is way <laughs> deeper than that and, and yeah. it, I mean, I, at the moment, it's a subject I'm, you know, engaging with. I, I, I'm looking at Eric Fromm's work. Fromm was the first person to use the term psychiatrically malignant narcissist in about 1961, and he published a book in 64 about it. And I'm very interested by the misdefinitions. He talks about being egotistical and, and that being a failing. And that, when it gets worse, is being narcissistic. And that, when it becomes something that's done against other people, becomes malignant narcissism. And you can add to that what the great, I, I have it right here. I've just finished reading this, The uh, Losing Reality by Robert J. Lifton, ah. which is revisits some of the essential material in his work and then has some commentary. But he, in talking about Donald Trump, says, you're not dealing with a narcissist per se you're dealing with a solipsist. Now, this is the highest grade. This is a person for whom nobody else really exists. We're all creatures of imagination. And I'm 
not qualified to, to say anything about Donald Trump in, in that regard. But when somebody said Donald Trump is a clone of Elron Hubbard, then in those terms, yes, Elron Hubbard was a solipsist. Um, there's a story called One Was Stubborn that he wrote in the 40s about this situation. And he basically, as with any sociopath, you don't care about other people's feelings because you don't feel them. You know, maybe your mirror neurons aren't firing or, or something. I, I'm not to totally convinced by that argument yet. But you don't feel anything. If um, somebody who's in the room with you hurts themselves, you know, they bang their thumb or something, you will go, yeah. Not the solipsist, not the narcissist, not the psychopath. They don't feel those feelings. They have a, a different construction and perception of the world. But you are so right. The word narcissist is being banded about crazily at the moment. I mean, a couple of years ago, um, my, our good friend Pete Griffiths was accused by my friend John Dykeman of being a narcissist. And it's like, no, Pete's to show off. <laughs> He's an exhibitionist. He's a performer. Uh, and I personally love him for that, you know, his flamboyant dress and manner. I think it's great. Um, but he, th there is no ounce of cruelty in that man. But So you could be a narcissist in that sense, like Elton John or David Bowie or, you know, whoever. Morrissey may be a different matter altogether, <laughs> you know, but um, who knows what he is. But, you know, I think a lot of performers become that. Mick Jagger, whoever, a lot of performers become that. Uh, Adele, some younger people than those as well. Um, when they go on stage, you know, as Bernard Fowler said in having performed as a singer with the Rolling Stones for 30 years now and almost being unknown, even though he sings lead on stage with them, he said, when you're driving to the gig with them, they're human beings. When you get on the stage, they're gods. And they use that. But they're I don't think there's anything malignant. In fact, I think Rolling Stones have probably contributed a great deal to, to positive culture by pointing out some of the faults, like the lovely song about neocons, for example, a few years ago, and Mother's Little Helper and, you know, Get Off My... So many insightful things about, you know, yet Mick Jagger does seem to be somewhat self-obsessed, especially according to Keith Richards. <laughs> so, you know... Right. There, there are gradations, and even there, it's, it's the extent to which you recognize there are other people, the extent to which you try to help other people, and the extent to which you try and control other people to your own benefit. And, and Ron Hubbard was, in that sense, narcissistic. But I think he was a lot worse than that, too, you know. Absolutely. That's actually fascinating. And I'm going to have to check out that latest book from Lifton because I, I have not seen that. Oh, it's um, fantastic. Yeah, Losing Reality, Robert J. Lifton. Yeah, I'm going to check that really, out. It kind of refresh. it's a refresh, of course, in the works of Robert J. Lifton. And for me, it was just like, what, why am I bothering to say anything? This guy has said it all in such detail. And it's, well, because, you know, maybe I'll be able to tell the story a different way and, you know, I'll be able to get it over to a different audience, you know. Well, exactly. Plus, Lifton's not exactly doing weekly podcasts and that sort of thing. So, mm. you know, we got to we got to get the information out there. And there is a uh, great interview on Steve Hassan's site about losing reality with Robert J. Lifton. 
So excellent, cool. But, but now you know. Here we are. We, we're coming towards the end, and I haven't. I haven't. I meant. To, and people tell me, look, shout about your YouTube channel. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, good. So let's let's hear it. <laughs> well, we're still there. We're still putting out three pieces at least a week. We've talked about Scientology in some detail. We've talked about Nukadampa tradition. Um, I have a particular thing about fake Buddhism. I'm not very, so I'm having a gut tree ratna. Generally, we've got, you know, my interest, as you know, is, is prevention. Let's get it over to the next generation that they don't have to belong to any one of the 25,000 authoritarian groups out there. You know, it's great that we say the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Moonies and this group and that group, but it's a way of being, and you can recognize human predators, you can recognize their techniques, and if we could just save 1% of the people from the horrors that we had to experience, then it would be worthwhile. And, and so you know, my channel is about prevention. It's also about information about authoritarian groups and discussion about that. And it's also about my family because, you know, my, one of my, I have a 15 year old boy who can play pretty much everything Jimi Hendrix played, pretty much everything Jimmy Page played. I hate him because when <laughs> I was 15, I'd have liked nothing more. I have, you know, my other son, Sam, who appears with me regularly, he's studying psychology, he's 17 now. Um, and makes paper sculpture and does stuff like that. And we want to show something of a healthy family dynamic on, on the channel too. Um, you know, I, I've had a couple of people who've, who've written in and, and told me that Sam really doesn't say enough. <laughs> you know, so from now on, it's his show. We also, of course, you you now have Elron Hubbard commenting on your channel, I notice. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I've actually, I, I started looking at this, and oh, I've got some nutcase who thinks he's Elron Hubbard. And now I realize he's actually this really clever man who who is quite positive and friendly. The guy who's calling himself Donald Trump, I'm having a bit more trouble with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, do check out John's channel. And again, the link will be below it as it has been in our other podcasts on uh, with John. Um, just, I, just, just go around and watch some of the little five minute things on there. You know, get a taste of it and subscribe. Exactly. Come on, guys, hit that subscribe button and the little bell. Make sure you get the notifications when the new videos come up. Come up. So cool, man. Wow. We have covered a lot of territory, huh? Hmm. Yeah, we've sewed up the, the legal situation. Now we've only got another 73 topics. And we'll <laughs> All right. Well, we will wrap up this week. But, John, thanks again, man. I always appreciate your time and the knowledge that you want to share. And I think uh, my viewers certainly seem to indicate that they do as well in the comments and stuff. So so thanks, man. It, it's always a pleasure. And, and actually, it, it seems to be more of a pleasure every time. And that's a good thing about a friendship, eh? Awesome. Yeah, I agree. I really do. Yeah. All right, man. Um, folks, any questions, comments, feedback out there, don't be shy about leaving it. Put it in the comment section below or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your criticism, even if you think, you know, we're getting something wrong. Leave it in there. Just don't insult us at the same time, and we'll try to do this, uh, return the favor and not insult you when we reply. So <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, again, stay safe. Okay, these are dangerous times. We are living in interesting times. Unfortunately, I think most of us wish we weren't. But this is the world and this is how it is right now. So we have to deal with that. And um, 
like I said, just follow the directions, get accurate instructions on what to do out there. Okay, the information is out there. The governments, uh, despite their bumbling and fumbling and individual problems, they really are trying to solve this thing. And uh, and I think if we look at all of their efforts with pessimism and cynicism, we might be losing. I think we want to you know be a bit more optimistic about this whole thing and be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So that all being said, folks, I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for coming around, and uh, bye-bye.